Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It doesn't take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. So, Mark? So, Shani? We, <laughs> we have a new person on the team, Emily. We do. Who we've introduced through a few of the webinars, uh, but we're taking her to lunch on Thursday. Yes, and... You gave her a list of options, mm-hmm. and then she picked one, and she picked the a Sri, Sri Lankan, Lankan restaurant. restaurant. Yeah. So you have some very strong feelings about this, about this restaurant. Are they strong? They're, yeah, they yeah, are okay. strong. <laughs> and you have not, you have not been there yet, so the I feelings haven't. are not about the food per se. No, I mean, I just, I eat ov- obviously a lot of Sri Lankan food. I make Sri Lankan food. My mom brings me Sri Lankan food all the time, um, and it just feels like a lot of money to pay for something you can make at home. Okay, you're dancing around the real issue here. <laughs> Shani, we're going to this, we're going to this restaurant and Shani brought up the webpage for this restaurant and it showed of course all the people that cook there and they're all white. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean I think that you can definitely appreciate someone's culture. Um you know, would you like? Would you go to a Chinese restaurant? The point Will was making before we started recording, where there were no Chinese people cooking. I mean, I probably have. Yeah, like but, Mr. Wong. Yeah, maybe. yeah. But but anyway, and it has an Indian name. It's called Indu. Yeah, but it's a Sri Lankan restaurant. But this should make you feel good about Sri Lankan food, right? That, the- <laughs> that people want to... Okay, so the worst possible thing is when the food from your culture, they pretend it's different food because people won't go to it, mm. right? So that's like the worst thing. I mean, don't you think that's it? Like they're calling it Indu and people will be like, oh, it's Indian food. Yeah, but they talk a lot about Sri Lanka. <laughs> I guess so. And all the names are Sri Lankan. You said that the menu items are... Yeah, I mean, I went through the menu and there is... Um... They have something called lunamiris, which it translates to onion chili. Yeah. I mean, I've had that before. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of Sinhala words on here, which is promising. Yeah. And how did you say you were going to order? I was going to order in Sinhala and see if anyone said anything. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this will be the first and last time we go to Indu. And it'll be a good experience for Emily to watch us get kicked out of a restaurant. I'm, I'm going to keep an open mind. Yeah, does it sound like she has an open mind? (laughs) Should we get to the episode? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Okay, so as, well, you did not say yet because you're too busy talking about- All right, should I introduce the episode? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so today we're going to talk a little bit about capital allocation decisions and how they impact the businesses you hold and the returns that we achieve. Yeah, exactly. And we have a bunch of different ratings our analysts put out, and this is one that we haven't really talked about at all. So capital allocation. So we talk about moats, we talk about the uncertainty rating and risk, and we certainly talk about valuation, but we're going to spend some time focused on capital allocation today, what constitutes good capital allocation and why you should pay attention to it when considering a potential investment opportunity. All right. So maybe let's start with what it is. Capital allocation refers to the way that management in a business spend their capital. And really, there's only three ways they're able to spend it the balance sheet, investing in the business, and shareholder distributions. In other ways, how do managers use the money that they have to create value for shareholders who are the owners of the company? 
Yeah, and one of the tricky things about capital allocation is that different decisions make sense in different market conditions and for different companies. So you might be looking at a more passive business. You'd look at whether they're returning the right amount of money to shareholders through their distribution. For a growth business, you might be looking at their investments. And if you're investing or you're returning money, you want to ensure that you have a strong balance sheet as well. That's definitely an important contributor and can be an important factor in total shareholder returns, especially when you're in a down market. So let's speak about balance sheet first as one of the three components. Why don't we start with what the balance sheet is and then talk about why investors should care about the balance sheet. Okay. So the balance sheet is one of three financial statements that a company puts out. And it's a point in time look at all the assets a company has and all the liabilities that a company has. So when we talk about the balance sheet as investors, we are generally referring to how good of shape how good of a shape a company is in financially. So the balance sheet tells you a lot as an investor. A company is in a ton of debt, it could be an indication that they may go bankrupt. The very least a bad balance sheet can decrease the flexibility of a company because they have all this debt to pay back which means that maybe they aren't able to borrow more money, or it could hamper their flexibility uh, when they're trying to invest in the business or pay dividends, because of course they have to pay this debt back. So a bad balance sheet also means that a company is more at risk to external events, which we saw a lot during COVID. And I think the prime example in Australia is the bankruptcy of Virgin Australia. So obviously all airlines face the same challenges during COVID, but Virgin Australia went out of business because they went into the pandemic with a ton of debt. So for some companies, the right decision is to pay down debt. Perhaps they took on a bunch of debt due to an acquisition and are now trying to get back to a more appropriate level of debt. And this is a case with a company that I own. Mm -hmm. So Anheuser-Busch InBev is a global beer giant, and they took on a lot of debt to buy South African brewers Miller. And they've struggled to pay it back, basically because of all the challenges related to COVID. And it's hurting the share price. So in their case, the best use of extra money right now is to actually pay off that debt. The other non-company consideration around the balance sheet is the level of interest rates. When interest rates are really low, companies may carry more debt because the cost to pay that debt is low. When interest rates are really high, they may not want as much debt because they're paying a lot of interest. Okay, so let's move on to the next consideration. And so, of course, capital allocation, one decision people can make is to invest right back in the business to try to grow more. So when you have a growth business where you're investing at attractive rates of return, it's important to look at what are the impacts of their investments? Are they investing in the right thing? If there's, and what is their strategy? And is it correct? And this is where we want to look at return on invested capital, which we've talked about a couple different times. But simply buying growth and earning the same return as your cost of capital isn't really doing anything for investors. We want a high return on invested capital where management is picking the right internal projects to fund or the right acquisitions where they can earn a return that exceeds their cost of capital. Naturally, there are some companies who have lots of opportunities and some companies that don't have as many. New companies in new interest industries may be overwhelmed with the opportunities to pursue growth, which can lead to poor decisions. They may have access to lots of capital because they are in an exciting new industry, which can lead to overhiring, lavish benefits for employees, and making not so great acquisitions of similarly overpriced companies. And then we have more mature companies that operate in industries that aren't growing fast or potentially at all. 
In that case, many of these companies concentrate on returning money to shareholders through dividends or share buybacks. And as investors, cash being returned to shareholders is a good thing, particularly if the other options are running a lazy balance sheet or investing in new projects for the sake of investing in new projects and then destroying value. If they're not earning their cost of capital, they're not supporting the strategy, and that money is better off being returned to shareholders either through dividends or buybacks. When our analysts assess capital allocation, they classify companies using three ratings, poor, standard, and exemplary. Exemplary is where we're calling out a company performing really well, or we've got an expectation that they're going to continue to perform well in the future. And that might be on the investment front, if they're a growth company, or maybe distributions if they're more mature and should be focused on returning cash to shareholders. With the poor capital allocation rating, that usually happens if a company is running an excessively geared balance sheet and taking too much risk with shareholder value. It would also happen if they're making poor investment decisions, whether it be in the wrong things or the wrong price, or they're not sending the right share of cash back to shareholders in the case of mature companies. So let's take a look at a couple of examples on either side of the spectrum. Our first example is Ansel with the ticker ANN, which has an exemplary rating. So Ansel is known as a manufacturer of protective industrial and medical gloves. And we assign Ansel an exemplary capital allocation rating based on the three capital allocation factors, our assessment of the balance sheet and the risk associated with it, the efficiency of their investments in shareholder distributions. So now we start with the balance sheet. So we obviously think that Ansel's balance sheet is sound. The main factor when we explore a balance sheet is to see if there is an undue level of financial risk. We know that Ansel is exposed to global economic cycles through its industrial segment, but we also believe that financial risk is low given solid cash conversion and relatively low gearing. That means low debt on the balance sheet. What we're most impressed with is how efficiently Ansel's investments in growing the business have been. Sometimes the best way to increase the efficiency of internal investments is to figure out what not to invest in. Ansel has been going through a restructure that has lasted quite a few years. It exited its sexual wellness business in fiscal 2017, as well as low margin business where Ansel was unable to differentiate their product from their competitors. I mean, that was quite, it exited its sexual wellness (laughs) business in fiscal 2017. I was trying not to stutter. In 2017, (laughs) they stopped selling condoms. Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah. Just so, you know, we we want to eliminate jargon on here, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So as important as it is to understand where investment opportunities exist, it's also important for management to acknowledge, as Ansel did, if divisions or sectors within their own business offer no value going forward. And Ansel made the decision to sell their condom business, as well as a business they had making military boots and gloves. And in all of these, they just weren't able to build meaningful market share. So in selling these businesses, for example, their condom business, they raised over $500 million US and reinvested that in this narrower set of brands that they kept. So the clear strategy for Ansel is to focus on its key brands which now contribute to the majority of earnings, and it continues to strengthen those brands. Management is now looking to grow by a combination of organic growth and bolt-on acquisitions. Ansel actually has return on invested capital as part of the criteria when they're evaluating acquisitions. So remember, we talked about before, we're looking for companies where the return on invested capital exceeds the weighted average cost of capital. And in Ansel's case, They want to exceed their internal weighted average cost of capital within three years, 
And in five years, they want it to be 1.5 times that mark. So we think that even though these are very small acquisitions, that discipline is going to pay off over the long term. And this is the discipline that we're looking for with investments. As listeners know, a company that is constantly able to earn a return that exceeds their cost of capital is what shareholders are looking for and what signifies a moat. And in this case, we give a narrow moat to Ansel. Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio, and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly global best ideas. Explore our ETF model portfolios. Plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX-listed stocks. Stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor, and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager, integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSight. Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four-week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes. The next thing we're going to look at is we're going to examine shareholder distributions. So we can see that typically they have averaged 45% of net income that's distributed as dividends, and they've kept a relatively consistent dividend payout rate, but they've also been able to fund the growth as we've talked before and maintain leading market positions in these brands. So what can we learn from Ansel's exemplary rating? Management isn't just about investing, it's about understanding the business, its operating environment, and its competitors enough to know where the business can be streamlined to contribute to future growth, and what approach to shareholder distributions will benefit shareholders over the long term. We're going to look at one more company with an exemplary rating, and it's going to be Woolies. So Woolies' balance sheet is sound. The investments they make in their business, we consider exceptional, and our analysts believe that the dividend level that's being paid out to shareholders is appropriate. So when we look at Woolies, they are a defensive retailer which faces minimal cyclicality, and this is because virtually all of group operating income comes from grocery retailing. Regardless of what is happening, pandemics, lockdowns, floods, droughts, apocalypses, people will still darken Woolworths' doorway. That was quite a list, Shani. I know. Yeah. And in, all in the last two years, you know? I know. <laughs> which, which apocalypse happened? Maybe I missed that. But, yeah, maybe uh, not that one yet. Yeah, hopefully that's not a prediction. <laughs> that might happen at lunch on Thursday, right? <laughs> so we also think that Woolley's balance sheet looks really good. And there are obviously a lot of different financial ratios we can look at. But the one thing that I would say is anytime you're comparing a balance sheet of a company, make sure that any of those ratios you look at are not just viewed as a standalone number. So they need to be compared to competitors and to industry averages, because of course, every industry is different and different industries can support higher or lower levels of debt. Finally, we have investments. So when Woolies makes investments, it's generally into new stores or a redoing a store. And we think that Woolies, and one of the reasons we like Woolies is because they can leverage the scale and cost advantages that they have in the supermarket business and also make new investments in online channels and their fulfillment methods that make them more efficient and better competitors. But I think it's important to acknowledge that Woolworths is a relatively low growth business. 
Supermarkets in Australia are known for this, and so a high level of distributions to shareholders makes a lot more sense, given that there's not many avenues for them to invest capital at a rate above the cost of capital. And so when we look at Woolworths' payout ratio, it's historically at 73%, which our analysts think is appropriate for the business and the industry that Woolies operates in, and is the best way to maximise value for shareholders given the high levels of ranking credits that the business generates. They're also good at understanding when to divest from investments to maximize value for shareholders. And we can see this through examples such as their retail fuel network. They divested and returned capital to shareholders via a $1.7 billion off-market share buyback that utilized their excess franking credits back in 2019. All right. So ultimately, there are a few lessons that we can take from Woolies and their capital allocation. The first is that investors must consider the industry and wider operating environment of a business and how that might impact capital allocation. Not all businesses are operating in the same conditions, so you can't apply the same capital allocation strategies across the board. Through Woolworths, we can also see that businesses do not need to just pick one lever to pull when considering capital allocation. Woolies has made active decisions to return capital to shareholders through dividends because it is the best way to create value but they also leverage scale to make appropriate investments in expansion and thoughtful decisions to divest business where it makes sense. Now, one thing we do need to say about Woolies is we need to have a quick note on the valuation because I think it does fit into what we were talking about. So when companies are mature, they don't have as many opportunities to invest and they tend to pay out a lot of their earnings and dividends. Generally, these companies will trade at pretty high yields meaning that compared to the price, the dividend is high. We do need to say that Woolies is trading at a very high multiple so that their dividend yield is actually fairly low, and it's currently trading at a yield of 2.6%. Just something to think about that you're not getting that much income from Woolies, and you're also investing in a business that's not going to grow very quickly. All right, so let's move on to a couple of companies that don't do capital allocation as well. Yeah, we don't often assign a poor capital allocation rating to companies we cover, but we have assigned one to A&P. And we just think that their strategy was really poorly executed and it cost shareholders. And specifically, our analysts call out A&P's apathy to improving their corporate governance and culture. We're all aware of the sexual assault allegations that were completely mishandled. They also, Our analysts also call out a series of poor executive appointments that were people that really prevented the business's turnaround, despite the strategy, supposed strategy of the business, which was to restructure and simplify. And this isn't just a recent charge of poor governance. AMP has had a history of poor capital allocation decisions. A significant example is the 2011 Axe acquisition. AMP completely misunderstood this business and they were plagued by higher than expected claims and lapsed policies that culminated in large losses, which led to a fall in the underlying earnings per share over time. One of the reasons for this was the dilution from the nearly 700 million new AMP shares issued for the acquisition. When new shares are issued, existing shareholders own less of the company. Now, this can be a good thing if the extra shares that are issued cause earnings to go up. For instance, if you double the amount of shares but take those shares and buy a business that triples the level of earnings, that's a good thing. That is not what AMP did, and so this just turned out to be a very messy, poor acquisition that was to the detriment of shareholders. AMP's poor corporate governance also helped to breed misconduct among financial advisors. We saw that all uncovered in the 2018 Royal Commission, 
and that all but destroyed AMP's economic moat and reputation as their misconduct was repeatedly publicized. And the stain on AMP's brand just hasn't gone away. All of this leads to our analysts saying that they're just not confident that AMP can provide value to shareholders, given the track record that we just talked about. The one positive that they can pull from AMP is that our analysts do see greater room for a higher and more stable dividend over the longer term. The decision not to declare a dividend in 2019 was prudent from management because they needed flexibility. We just had a lot of uncertainty, obviously, in that period, as well as internal uncertainty. At that time, AMP was selling AMP Life. There was also the possibility of further remediations after the Royal Commission. And more broadly, there were ongoing structural changes in the broader financial advice industry that they had to remain cognizant of. AMP did say that they don't expect to pay a dividend in 2021 and 2022, and that they'd reinstate dividends in 2023 because management's priority should be, and is, it seems, on turning AMP around and ensuring there's a capital buffer for unexpected events. We think this is pretty sensible from governance. So what can investors learn from AMP? Well, we can learn that poor execution of strategy and poor capital allocation decisions can come at a significant cost to shareholders. 2001, AMP was trading at over $13. Now, it's trading at $0.97. Cents. Of course, there are several factors that have contributed to the market losing faith in this once financial giant. But there's no doubt that poor governance and poor capital allocation decisions have been the main contributor to their fall from grace. All right, so let's do one more example of poor capital allocation, and that's AGL. AGL's balance sheet should be pretty strong and sturdy. They've got a pretty good run selling assets, and they underwrote the dividend reinvestment plan. What this means is they have an underwriter come in and guarantee that there will be a set participation rate with the dividend reinvestment plan. That means that AGL is able to increase and maintain a high dividend payout, and they're not going to run out of cash because some of the dividend is being paid in shares and not cash. So this often offers their balance sheet protection. And let's talk about how effective their investments in their own business have been. So our analysts see AGL's approach as mixed. So AGL is very capital intensive. We think that investment is mostly value neutral, but AG is splitting its retail and generation business. And we think that this is going to actually destroy value because there's going to be duplication of resources and they're going to lose the benefits that come from scale when they split into two smaller businesses. When we look at shareholder distributions, the third piece of the puzzle, our feelings are also mixed. AGL is a highly cash generative business and it pays out a dividend of 75% of underlying net profits after tax. We think that's pretty appropriate given the sound balance sheet that we spoke about and also the lack of investment opportunities. This is the best way we really see to build value for shareholders. What's worth mentioning, though, is that AGL bought $1 billion worth of shares in 2017 and 2020 at relatively high prices. We talked a little bit about this during our episode on The Outsiders, but share buybacks work great when the share price is undervalued and not so well when the share price is overvalued. In this case, the company was buying back shares in 2020 when they were trading two to three times their current level. We've gone through some good examples, right? It's like we played hot or not with <laughs> capital allocation decisions. Yeah. So a couple of examples of hot, a couple of examples of, of definitely not. <laughs> and hopefully what we've demonstrated is we've gone through what you should look out for. And what we've tried to talk about throughout this episode is our point of view that there is no ideal template for how to create value for shareholders. There are so many different factors that impact the amount of attention 
you devote to each one of those portions of capital allocation. But there are differing views in the market about whether certain levers are more attractive than others. In particular, there's a view that dividends are the least efficient way of creating value and that it actually destroys shareholder value. Dividends have been a draw for many investors, especially in the recent past, where we've been in an incredibly low interest rate environment, and many have been scrounging for income. And there are, of course, proponents of investing in the business as a mechanism for deploying capital instead of dividends. And that includes Warren Buffett. And we can see that through his company, Berkshire Hathaway, who famously has never paid a dividend. And the premise is that companies should be focused on investing and building their moats wider to strengthen their competitive advantages. And in that way, companies should decide to retain as much capital as possible. And it is seen as the best way to create value for shareholders, as distributing cash to shareholders limits the potential for growth, and also, in most cases, involves tax implications for those shareholders. It's worth mentioning, though, that most of the businesses that Buffett acquired or holds major stakes in all pay dividends. So there are also proponents of both ways of distributing cash. So you can either return cash to shareholders through dividends or through share buybacks. And there is no right or wrong answer. Companies throw money away on internal projects and they throw money away on acquisitions. Sometimes share buybacks make sense and sometimes dividends make more sense. It all depends on the timing of the share buyback. That's right, Mark. And that's simply because with share buybacks, the key variable is the price of the stock relative to the value of the stock. Returns will be higher for a share buyback if the business has an opportunity to buy back its shares when they're at a discount. And that's just because, of course, the larger the gap between the price and the share price of the shares and their value, the higher the return on the share buyback. Unfortunately, though, the timing of this doesn't always work out. So when you think about it, when companies generate the most excess cash is probably the same time that the stock is trading at a high level. And sometimes these opportunities can occur But the consensus is that companies should plan for distributions to shareholders instead of waiting for these rare occurrences when the timing is just right. We did speak a little bit about some unconventional ways to address this in our book review of The Outsiders by William Thorndike. You can go back and listen to that episode, but it speaks about using debt to take advantage of low low share prices and utilize buybacks to create value over the long term. And ultimately, we are agnostic when it comes to the levers that businesses can pull when allocating capital. Businesses are unique in their structures, operating environments, industries, and available opportunities at any given time. The list just goes on. But this doesn't mean that there's no way for investors to determine whether a company is investing in the best way it can to create value for the shareholder. Exactly right, Mark. And we think this is pivotal for investors to consider when they're looking at potential investment opportunities, because as we saw in the case of AMP and AGL, capital allocation decisions have been extremely detrimental to the strength and growth of businesses. Okay. Well, great. Thank you very much for joining us today. We will we'll give a report on lunch. I think that's only fair. <laughs> yeah. See if Shawnee's ever allowed in there again. But we would appreciate any questions or comments. There's an email address, my email address in the show notes. So send through any suggestions you may have. So thank you very much. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.